Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with Derek Davison, and we are excited to welcome back to the pod for his second time, his return appearance, Daniel Immervar. Daniel is the author of many books, two to be precise, Thinking Small and How to Hide an Empire, and he is also the author of a very exciting new essay that just came out titled The Galactic Vietnam, Technology, Modernization, and Empire in George Lucas's Star Wars, which is part of a volume that I am also in, titled Ideology in U.S. Foreign Relations, New Histories, edited by David Milne and Christopher McKnight Nichols, which we'll talk a little bit about that as well. So Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. and Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me back. It's good to be here. So I was thinking we were talking a bit off mic about maybe starting this discussion from a bit of a more macro perspective. And, and that is this turn that you and I have really seen in uh, over the course of our careers, which is to intellectual history or ideological history in the field of U.S. diplomatic history. Um, this was never really a major subfield, even though one could argue that a lot of the major books in the field, I'm thinking specifically of William Appleman Williams's The Tragedy of American Diplomacy and John Lewis Gaddis's Strategies of Containment, basically books on strategy, were in effect intellectual histories, uh, where they took ideas seriously and they took the flow of ideas over time seriously. Um, but and, and, as a general matter, the field had focused on other issues. So I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about why intellectual history has become such a popular subfield in the broader diplomatic international history field. And maybe we could even talk a little bit about the irony that this has been occurring as younger scholars have been in their own ideology, uh, ideological politics returning to Marxism, which is a material theory of history, yet all these lefties are doing intellectual history. So a kind of a big, broad topic, but I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, first, I think it might help to distinguish the kinds of intellectual history you can do. So the most so intellectual history is the history of ideas and the people who professionally produce them. And the the most obvious way to do that is to take ideas on their own terms. So, you know, if you're doing a history of philosophy, you ask what philosophers said, what kind of arguments they had. Uh, and and that way of doing intellectual history or the history of the ideas is is kind of very respectful to the practitioners. So I think a lot of the older diplomatic history was, well, what did people who were leading the State Department think? What did what was in presidents' heads? Um, if you asked them the answer to these questions, what would they have said? So, the, And that's the sort of, you mentioned this historian, John Lewis Gaddis. I think that's very much his atmosphere was, you know, putting out in an articulate way what what leaders would have you know would have said if they were just laying out all their ideas but then i think there's a radical approach to it too which is to treat thinkers with a lot less respect and to say you know what's really interesting about what these people think isn't their um the ideas that they would articulate it's the assumptions that they're not even aware of that are deeply baked in there that are rattling around somewhere in the back of the you know the, the, the like the, the the attic or the closet of their minds uh and that are guiding them in ways that they're not even aware of those aren't their ideas those are their ideologies and that's what we really need to get to the bottom of so that other book you mentioned um william Abman williams was really interested in that right he wasn't interested in the sort of people's own theories as they would recognize them. He was, he, he was interested in, in zooming way out and saying, 
whatever people think, here are their unstated assumptions and possibly even uncriticized assumptions and possibly even unacknowledged assumptions. So I think that's the more radical way of doing um, intellectual history, uh, or at least radical in the sense of distancing yourself from the subject. And you can see why that has a lot of purchase today. And that's, I, th- I feel like that's kind of how you and I both do it. We can talk about that. Yeah, I think it's almost natural. It's also taking non-traditional texts and, and taking their ideas seriously, even though it's kind of, I mean, non-traditional for, for 40 years, they've kind of been, you know, people have been studying. So, yeah. so let's talk about that too, right? Because if you are, if you're, if you're curious about what people's ideas are in the, you know, visible to them kind of sense, then you'll look at their writings and you'll look at uh, memos and white papers and, you know, all these, this stuff of diplomacy, right? The obvious documents that people who are doing statecraft think are the important documents and preserve as such, or, or perhaps they classify as such, whatever they, however they want to treat them. But um, if you're asking about ideology, you might think, well, you know, actually, uh, by the time people get to writing things down, their, their, their mindsets are already totally baked. You want to know, what they read when they were kids. You want to know the comic books. You want to know the films. All this stuff that actually, I mean, in some ways it's ephemeral and, and disposable and we can think of it as like intellectually unserious, but actually does far more in uh, shaping how we think than any, you know, white paper could possibly do. Yeah, it's creating, basically creating space for the entire worldviews, the ontologies, the Weltanschauung of what these people thought. It's much more of a total intellectual history and, and very much influenced by European intellectual historical approaches. I, I think yeah. that that is yeah. probably the big difference between our generation of scholars and previous generations is that many of us were trained in, in literally European methods. Uh, did you, you had a Europeanist on your committee, I believe, right? Am I making that up? Was Jay uh, yeah. not on your committee? Yeah, you're totally making that up. But oh, Marty J. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Marty J., the person you're talking about, is a European intellectual historian, historian of the Frankfurt School, and and was someone that I worked with, even though he wasn't on my dissertation. I think he was very influential, actually, in, in, bringing, uh, in bringing a more European intellectual historical methodology into the field of American history. I think that that is a really important right. reception history that remains to be written, particularly... <laughs> this is very shop talky, but it's interesting. Marty J was really the first guy to just summarize a lot of the Frankfurt School's work in English in his book, The Dialectical Imagination, in the early seventies. And I think that was really important for bringing the Frankfurt School to non-Europeanists. And that approach is sort of like a Marxist total Geschichte approach. Total Geschichte. Forgive my uh, adjectival <laughs> cases, um, but I, I think that. That that is unique, and I think that is also an artifact of the transnational turn. I mean, like I did Europe. I, I my major as an, as a as a PhD student was in European history, even though I do um, American history right now. And so it's it, that's a really important artifact. Yeah, it's it's interesting because what I mean, you know that that book that that you're right was so influential, the dialectical imagination just summarizes all of this Marxist thought, right, and does it beautifully. But you know, it is not. It's. I mean, it's itself is just a fairly straightforward history of intellectuals, right? Here are the intellectuals. There's no argument in that book. Uh, but what it introduced, it sort of opened up a world of, this is how to think about ideas, because what the Frankfurt School did that felt so important was to exactly what we're talking about, right? Is is, is the Marxist approach to the history of ideas is to not, 
usually to take the individual ideas as consequential, but to take the worldview as consequential. And to take the worldview as somehow triggered by people's material conditions. So to get some kind of account of if you live in a place like this and you know your material conditions are this, you will find yourself making these assumptions, thinking these kinds of thoughts. And that's what the Frankfurt School did so well. And and it's true. I mean, everyone around us, so I was trained at Berkeley, that's where Marty uh, Jay taught. And everyone around there was, you know, they were all, you know, swimming in those waters. That's exactly right. And it's also interesting just to get to that other question I asked about historicizing ourselves is one of the reasons that the Frankfurt School made their turn to ideas in the 1920s was in response to the so-called crisis of Marxism, namely the workers fought each other in World War I. Why did they do that? Because that's not what they were supposed to do. So they turned to ideas as an explanatory factor because the material conditions didn't prove what supposedly orthodox Marxists had claimed. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts about why in the last 20 years intellectual history has really experienced a renaissance. Even when I entered graduate school in 2007, there was still the overhang of intellectual history is, you know, old school history, no one really does it, you know, it's cultural history is what you do, and obviously they're related, but let's just leave that to the side, because to me it's a little bit more difficult to explain than the reemergence or the renaissance in labor history or the history of capitalism, right? It's very clearly linked to 2008 and its aftermath, but we also have at the same exact time a revivification of intellectual history. Uh, Do you have any thoughts about why that was? Yeah, let's explore that a little bit, because the answer that you gave when you were talking about why people in the Frankfurt School, like Adorno and Horkheimer and Marcu- you know, Marcuse later, were all interested in ideas, was that was basically the failure of socialism, right? So, so if you are a Marxist, you think, okay, this is the immiseration thesis. Once people's you know, conditions get crappy enough, uh, they will recognize this. They will recognize they have class solidarities. They will recognize that those class solidarities cut across national borders, and they will look at the Kaisers and the Kings and other people ordering them to, you know, either into factories or into war, which at a certain level start to resemble each other very much in their industrial violence. Uh, and they will, you know, workers of the world will unite, and they will they will have nothing to lose but their chains. And there you'll have it. And so, if you believe that, if you think that is a sensible way for history to go, and then you look at the 20th century, you have a big "what the fuck happened?" question to answer. And so you're right. One of the answers is, okay, well, somehow people ended up with the wrong theories, right? Uh, you, like like the, the conditions were right for, for them to have a revolution, for them to have communism, but they didn't do it. And why didn't they do it? Like, how were they duped? Did they have a false consciousness or something like that? That I think is not our problem. That is not what, I mean, that's not the issue that you will talk about what you and I are, are interested in as researchers more particularly, but, but I don't, I don't, I don't think that like, why is socialism not happening is like, first of all, it is happening more, but it doesn't seem to be the, the major problematic. I think a lot of it has to do with, um, the bottoming out of not just the academic job market, but all of these intellectual jobs. It used to be the case that sort of being an intellectual, like not just someone who thinks, but someone whose job it is to produce ideas, to be a paid member of the intelligentsia was enough of a natural thing that you didn't have to really think about your positionality because, you know, you got a job and felt very comfortable. You got high status, you got a pension, you know, people paid attention to what you said and you could, you know, get on to writing your monograph of, you know, the micropolitics of poor relief in early modern Britain. But, um, you know, then for journalists, for authors, for, uh, you know, grad students, the great reserve army of grad students, all of that kind of failed to work. And then that, I think that produced a lot more, interest in what are the conditions of being an intellectual, a lot more theorization of that. Um, you know, what is my position? What should my position be? What is the place of ideas? What should the place of ideas be? Am I in a society that doesn't value ideas enough? So that's my 
from a distance take. Does that sound right to your ears? You 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 know it does. Love this it, more it, than I have. It, it does sound. I I think it does sound right, and it's it's very interesting because you basically don't see people do social history any longer. I mean, and, yeah. I mean, people say they do social history, but if you look at the 70s social history, I mean, these are people who go into archives and study a medieval German town for 30 years, and they map out everything to do in that town and all of those social relations. And that sort of history has almost gone totally away. Um, and it's interesting that it's been replaced by this like hyper focus on not really philosophy. It's uh, kind of interesting. The intellectual f- uh, history of philosophy is a little moribund, I think. I mean, you have someone like Katrina Forrester, whose recent excellent book on John Rawls is an example of that tradition. But not many people are studying William James, you know, right. uh, in, in, in the way that that was the center of the field. So you have the application of uh, intellectual historical methods to basically non-traditional intellectual historical subjects, like you say, policy and things like that, people who are not generally considered to be merchants of ideas, as, as the old phrase had gone. Um, but what's also interesting is that you have a return to this hyper-materialist politics among many of the actual practitioners of intellectual history. And I guess that could be related to exactly what you're saying, is that you have, you, you have these collapse in the material conditions that supported the field, and therefore, you now have a return to like focusing on intellectuals, qua intellectuals. But there does seem to me there's at least a bit of an irony that all these, you know, democratic socialists are are studying the 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 superstructure, as it were. Yeah, yeah. And let's get back to that because one question that you can ask about the superstructure is the question that you you already asked, right? Why doesn't it match the base? People, this should be a revolutionary class. It's not a revolutionary class. What's going wrong in people's heads that they're not getting how they're supposed to behave? I think the kinds of questions that you and I are asking as people who study the relationship of the United States and the world are the opposite. We're asking, oh, how do people get to have the correct ideology, right? How do people who are the global 1%, who are, you know, in every way, the privileged of the earth, how do they come to see their world? Uh, like, how do they learn that privilege? Uh, you know, what video games do you have to play? What comic books do you have to read? What films do you have to watch in order to understand your place of like extraordinarily, extraordinary privilege in the world and, and come to basically a position where you can deny the democratic demands of an unequal world. Uh, and you can deny them spontaneously and naturally because you've somehow like watched enough Rambo or something like that. Right. Not, not even acknowledge them. Uh, and yeah, I think that's, this, that's this that's is how ideology works, right? Right. Exactly. And I think this is actually interesting because this, this gets us closer to your article. We're not quite there yet because our field in particular, diplomatic slash international slash U.S. in the world history, whatever you want to call it, has really, I mean, I would say a lot of the most vibrant work today is is intellectual historical. Almost every book, even if it's like not square intellectual history, will take ideas and in, in, in intellectuals seriously. I'm thinking, you know, Fritz Bartel's recent book, which is not about intellectuals or ideas really does take ideas and ideology seriously. And I think that's related. And I'm curious what you think to two things. One, um, the decline or the end of this neoliberal era, you know, however we want to define it. And then two, it does feel like we're at a hinge point in terms of U.S. imperial history, that, that the United States, or as I argued in Harper's, and tell me if I'm wrong, that the American century as an ideological project is over. 
So we're in a really unique moment. You did, because, argue, you did argue that in Harper's. You were correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but this is this is what to me is interesting about that is that it's kind of a subtle argument in the piece. I probably could have brought it out stronger, but I think the material basis of the empire is just fine. It's the ideological project that we don't really have any longer. People don't believe the United States is going to usher in a more progressive world. People don't believe that the United States is going to take history, capital H, in a Hegelian, uh, Hegelian history in a positive direction. So what we have is we have the bases, but we don't have the project. And that, to me, is pretty unique. And I was wondering what you think about that, or whether you think my diagnosis of why diplomatic history has, has seen this reemergence of intellectual history. And then we could talk a little bit about if you think that my my take on the American imperial project is correct or wrong. Yeah. Um, I mean, let's, let's talk about the second thing, because I think that's one of the bigger questions that we could possibly argue about. Um, and I'm not sure that I agree with you. Uh, I think that, you know, when the current world order was formed, which is right after World War II, you know, the United States was producing, uh, if I'm going to garble this figure, it's only by one. Uh, but I, th I think I checked and I think it's roughly this. It, it was producing more goods than, like, its GDP was larger than um, the next five countries combined. 50% you know of world I mean? exports. I mean, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah, no, it is, to it is totally incredible. Um, and like any, you know, it's like, like, uh, how much like, uh, oil was consumed, uh, by the United States. Like it's like 60% of the world's oil, like, like 59% of the world's, world's gold reserves. Like it's all like, all the numbers are like that. It's like, there's like the United States and then there's the world and the portion that the United States has is as large or often larger than the portion that the entire rest of the world has. It is mind-boggling that that level of international inequality and that's not a world we live in today right it's just simply not the case the united states is not it depends on how you measure gdp and you know how, how you factor in things like uh, purchasing power parity but it, it's, it's not the united states doesn't have the highest per capita gdp not by a long shot and it doesn't obviously have the highest gdp either absolute gdp so um, we are looking at a world where the united states is much more you know a nation among nations economically, but then it has all that infrastructure of other stuff, right? It has all these military bases. It has, you know, far more military bases than, you know, all the rest of the countries combined. It has the world's largest military. So it has all these things that that were built around it being the kind of economic center of the world. And it's not really the economic center of the world, but it also, it still has the infrastructure. So you could look at that as the base and the superstructure kind of having gone out of joint, or you could just say, you know, the dollar is still the world's currency. English is still the world's language. Of course, it's still the global superpower. This is why you need angles. And this is, this is a big, a big gap in Marxist theory. Yeah, <laughs> Everyone's saying it. Yeah. Um, because angles took security, military power, however you want to took it much more seriously than Marx ever did. Um, and for people who want to read about this, I would point them to the Makers of Modern Strategy essay by Zygmunt Neumann originally, and then I think Mark von Hagen did an updated version in the 80s or the 90s. But it really gets into Engels' military thinking. And I think this is the big theoretical gap that we have in the left, is that we don't have a good sense of how what I would call the security base. The security and power are as much a base, in my opinion, as the means of production. 
Um, I think that that is a, a, another base to, to how power actually works. So if you think about it, in, in traditional Marxist thinking, the means of production form the base, and then everything comes from that, the sort of superstructure, the ideology, really everything, politics, governance, what have you. But I also think that security is as much a base to that, like literally the, the ability yeah. to um, gather power and use it to coerce someone through mean, through violence. And I don't think we have a good sense of how that interacts. And I think particularly today, that is a big lack. Because the way that I see it, we have a genuinely global capitalist system, genuinely global, not linked to nation states. Yeah, Even yeah, if you yeah, have yeah. the dollar as reserve currency, it, which is still a form of national power, I would say, uh, on balance, it's more global. But then we have a very, very nation-state-based security infrastructure that I think is genuinely still nation-state premised. And so we don't have a good sense of how those two interact with each other. So if one was going to write, you know, be the marks of the 21st century, I think they would have to take both of those seriously. And even think about, you know, the Ganden, the Ginden uh, Panitch book, Making Global Capitalism, I believe that's the name. They sort of black box the security infrastructure in the first two pages. They're like, we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how global capital functions. But to me, that is the big biggest premise because like i think you're precisely right not even the united states you look at the g7 they just they control much less of global gdp as a block than they did in 1991 which is i think the um the way to measure it when you're talking after 1945 you then incorporate the g7 which are effectively part of the same polity in, in a lot of significant ways i think at least but they just control a lot uh, a lot less of global gdp but the united states qua the united states still has the military power to destroy the world 17 times over. And that's a unique moment in world history. And that's where I think we have this theoretical gap. And that's what I th- what I mean when I say that I still think the American empire is quite powerful, even if economically and culturally, it's not as powerful as it once was. Yeah, that works. And um, I think that was something I came up against a lot when I was um, writing my most recent book, How to Hide an Empire, because um, I was very interested in material explanations of empire, but the older material explanations where everything that the U.S. state does is because of what the capitalists within its borders want it to do. I found that totally uncompelling in a lot of cases. Not that I'm unsympathetic. No, it's not right. It's just often incorrect. Um, But uh, if if you then look at, you know, what strategically the United States feels that it has to do in order to secure the kinds of systems, which indirectly will obviously be generally terrific for its capitalists, um, then you can see you know, the material logic impinging much more clearly uh, on decisions. So I became a kind of materialist, but a materialist about things like security and strategy rather than things like, you know, you know, uh, ExxonMobil or, uh, you know, or, or some other corporation. I think that's precisely right. And and this is, uh, we'll, we'll turn to the Vietnam article uh, now, the Star Wars article. But I, I mean, this is a project that I've been wanting to get going, I'd say for three or four years. I think there needs to be a, a big theoretical conference where we meet like four or five times to develop something like this because it is such an obvious gap in how power functions that we need it to be filled because we're missing a lot by either focusing on the security or the economics ultimately disconnected from each other and we need an integrated theoretical framework that takes them both equally seriously and i don't think in the 21st century you're going to have a mark i I just don't think like if you look at what marx was reading he was reading like 30 books about cheap collection in 1617 (laughs) manchester right you just can't do that anymore but this is i think we're, we're reaching the limits of our understanding without integrating these two perspectives. Yeah, that, that works for me. I like that. 
<laughs> so let's organize it. Okay, so let's go to the Vietnam, the Galactic Vietnam essay. So Daniel, this is an excellent, excellent piece. So before we get into it, why don't we start with why did you think it was important to study Star Wars? Or even more broadly, you have a series of essays on cultural products. We talked to you earlier about Dune. People check that essay out. Why do you think these cultural products are important to analyze, to understand post-45, really post-60 U.S. international, U.S. in the world history? I mean, I I don't want to speak for Daniel, but I think the parallels here are fairly obvious. Like, who is Luke Skywalker if not a young Robert McNamara (laughs) making his way in the world? (laughs) You know, who is Princess Leia if not, you know, Gene Kirkpatrick type figure? I mean, it's it it all it all falls into place. So I I don't know, Daniel, you can obviously talk about it. It's almost a little too pat, just the way you've said it. No, that's great. I love it. Um, Yeah. So let's talk about the the broader project. I think a lot of people are drawn to uh, to things like Dune and Star Wars um, just because they're drawn to Dune and Star Wars, right? That they have a kind of way in which those franchises activated them. A lot of their imaginative life is is you know built around these kinds of you know IP, and they sort of imagine themselves contending with the dark side or you know channeling the Force or something like that. And there's a lot of people wanting to figure out like how to you know, uh, like make sense of, of, of the, of their own mental landscapes. And, and, and I get that. Um, and I really do acknowledge like how important these, these texts have been for a lot of people. I think I, 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 I'm not one of those people. Like I haven't, Star Wars doesn't like the force does not run strong within me. Um, but, but I recognize that these are incredibly influential things, like not just, you know, movies seen by a lot of people, but movies like really experienced in a deep way by a lot of people. I mean, this is the official podcast of Lucasfilm. So, I mean, we're going to have to cut that, your answer. Yeah. Get get that out of there. I think George would agree with it. I mean, literally what he wanted to do, he said this, he's like, my goal is to create a new mythology. Well, when I did Star Wars, I consciously set about to recreate myths and the, and the classic mythological uh, motifs, uh, and I wanted to use those motifs to deal with issues that existed today. Right, not to create a film, but to create a mythology. And the mythology is the kind of thing that you know we can domesticate and make part of our lives, and becomes part of our storytelling apparatus, and becomes like a template for how we see the world. Um, but you know, just one obvious thing is. Dune, uh, Star Wars, you know, Isaac Asimov Foundation things a little earlier, Rambo. These are all obviously about foreign policy. They're about empires like collapsing and, and colliding with each other. And it is, I mean, it's just like, it's so hard not to want to connect that to what's going on in the United States as hegemonic project. And that feels really vital for the reasons that, you know, I, we, you and I already talked about, which is that like part of that hegemonic project is understanding how people in the United States see themselves and how they project their image of themselves onto the rest of the world and whether that image is accepted or not. And this is where it happens. One thing that's really interesting to me about this in particular is that people always talk about how Lucas was so influenced by the 30s serials. The, the, the Flash Gordon, was that the name yeah, of Buck it? Rogers. Buck Rogers. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, that's so interesting to me. And Daniel, I think I've mentioned this to you before, but I think this is a ripe article. Maybe you and I could even co-write. You know, General Henry Harley Arnold wrote a series of boys' adventure novels, right? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. When he was in the 20s and the 30s. So, like, we have the the the, the head of the, the founding chief of the uh, Air Force 
the guy who led the Army Air Forces during World War II and helped found the Independent Air Force, was writing these boys' adventure novels. So these are, I think, really crucial ideological projects. But what you articulate in your essay is how Lucas's Star Wars differs from that. So I was wondering, could you talk a little bit about those 30 serials and what vision they were kind of expressing in this pre-hegemonic moment when the United States was very wealthy and powerful but had not taken, seized the mantle of world leadership? Yeah, I think they're really optimistic. Um, and they're really optimistic, particularly in a sort of tech sort of way. They imagine futures. They imagine thrilling futures where, you know, there's space travel and there's ray guns and, and there's that kind of thing. And and they transpose, you know, the Western into outer space. And, and they have, you know, just like these sort of serials that are just like going on and on about all these kind of space adventures that, you know, a plucky young lad can have. Um, and George Lucas grew up with those. And, and he's obviously influenced by them. His first film, THX 1138 uh, in the 70s, starts with clips from those old Buck Rogers serials. Like that's like, that's his filmic debut is that stuff. Um, he's watched it. He knows it really well. Um, that becomes a kind of live text for him. But as you pointed out, I don't think his relationship to it is just that of a cheerleader. I think he actually has a complex relationship to it. So why don't we actually, I think it might be easy, even though this is not how the article functions necessarily, to, to go a little bit chronologically through Lucas's career. So who is George Lucas and how does his ideology develop between THX 1138, American Graffiti, and then the next one is Star Wars, right? That's the one, two, three? Yeah, that's the one, two, three. It's a hell of a one, two, three. Um, yeah, it's a hell of well, a one, two, three. I, there's also a two and a half in there, which we are going to talk about. Um, so, uh, yeah, he's, he's from California. He is, um, he's born in like 1944. So he was like a, a virtually a baby boomer. Um, although interestingly, I, I don't know if you and I have talked about this. It's weird that a lot of the cultural figures like Bob Dylan and George Lucas, uh, who we identify as boomers are actually not boomers. They're pre-boomers. Like the boomers themselves are culturally bereft. It's the generation slightly before that caters to them. Uh, yeah, same with that, the Beatles. The Beatles are pre-boomers, you know? Yeah, exactly. Boomer exactly. Band, yeah. yeah, yeah. Just like Joe Biden, another pre-boomer. Boomer. Um, yeah, okay. So he's, he's of that like, you know, basically caters to like older brother of the boomers generation. Um, and he uh, uh, is uh, very like activated by Californian culture in a number of ways. First, he's part of the, um, you know, tinkering with hot rods and, and racing them culture. That's his like teenage culture. He gets in a really bad car accident that almost uh, kills him and prevents Star Wars from happening. Uh, and that's the subject of uh, his film, American Graffiti. It's a very nostalgic look at, at that kind of stuff. Um, but then he's also part of the 1960s San Francisco anti-war counterculture. And, you know, we, we don't always think about him in that way, but you're like, yeah, this is a young art, artistic guy with a beard uh, at a time when being a young artistic guy from California with a beard, that meant something. And he was very much part of that countercultural generation. He's very close to Francis Ford Coppola. The two of them um, share politics, including an anti-war politics. So all of his films kind of come out from an attempt to deal with, you know, what it is to be of that political moment. And the first film, um, THX 1138, starts with that really lustrous, shiny future of Buck Rod uh, Rogers, and then immediately cuts to the future that he wants to tell you about, which is a dystopian future. It's an awful future. There is sort of 
robot overlords uh, who are moving, uh, you know, uh, half incarcerated workers around. And, and, the, and the, the plot is about, you know, can you escape them? And those robot overlords, by the way, look exactly like the stormtroopers who will later conjure in the Star Wars films. Can you feel this? What is that buzzing? Are you now? Or have you ever been? Move slowly. So what's the ultimate ideological project, would you say, of THX 1138? It, I mean, it's so familiar to us because it's, I mean, it's almost cliched. It's right. It's like, if you take technology too far, it will become fascist. It, it is the kind of, you know, Frankfurt School critique of um, the ways, not just sort of, you know, the, the violence of high technology, but also um, the, the sort of soporific uh, parts of like, um, you know, feeding people like pleasure cubes or whatever, just to like keep them, uh, uh, keep them docile. Uh, and then you have like the, the robot police with batons to like, you know, you smack them around when they get out of line. It's, it's about, uh, you know, the subordination of the organic by the inorganic. And it's about, you know, power and technology dominating, you know, creative and human life forces. And could you maybe talk about that in the context of modernization theory? Because the important point is that this is coming after this moment of high modernism, which, which is really defining the American imperial project in the 1960s. Yeah, you have to understand that. I mean, this is, it's the classic generational conflict. George Lucas's parents' generation, I mean, not particularly his parents, but but the the leaders of the country who are, you know, parentally aged compared to him are very much still in that Buck Rogers mode, right? They're very much in the like, we are, we're going to solve all problems with technology. And that is how we won World War II. Yes, we had brave soldiers, but basically we had better tech than anyone else. Uh, and we used that tech in the Korean War to, you know, just drop ungodly amounts of napalm uh, on the uh, northern part of the Korean Peninsula. And now that we are fighting a replay of that in Vietnam, we are going to win it with these you know, B-52s, like wingspans the size of football fields, uh, new, you know, sensors to detect body heat so we can find out exactly where the enemy is. I mean, the Vietnam War was, at, you know, as it sort of kind of tumbled out, was for the people who were fighting it, a tech war. And they were going to win it the same way they'd won the last bunch of wars, which is by having better technology than everyone else. That technology was making people happy on the home front, and that technology was winning wars at home, uh, abroad. And uh, George Lucas objected to both of those things, both to the ways in which the sort of gratifying aspects of technology at home because it kept people docile and to the violence of it abroad. And what's really interesting to me, if you take this in the longer context of Lucas's career, is that he eventually becomes a technological evangelist in the 1990s, and particularly fostering the transition from film to digital, which I want to talk about that a little bit later, but I just wanted to highlight that irony there. Let's move on to American graffiti. And what I found interesting about your essay, which is something I never talked about, is that the centrality of car culture, it really does co connect technological modernism to an American fantasy post-war project. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that and maybe just a little unrelated to U.S. foreign affairs, but how are the boomers able to nostalgize themselves basically five seconds after the period that they're nostalgizing and it's, yeah. it's very interesting so, to me. They're so, I mean, proto-nostalgic. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if, if you, when well, the last time you watched American Graffiti was. It, American Graffiti was received as an enormously popular, lucrative movie that was cheap and that was artistically serious. Like that, that was a, I mean, it kind of, I mean, that was, that was a breakout film for him, but it was a breakout film, not for the George Lucas that we know, who's kind of like a storyteller, but also a schlock and a ham, but like people are like, Oh, that is a really good movie. And there's been a number of movies that take its plot, which is just, 
you know, a bunch of teens kind of on the town for a night. So um, Slacker is that movie. Uh, more recently, Booksmart is the same movie. Um, Isn't like, Confused? That's our... Isn't Confused, exactly. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, and the thing about those movies is when they hit you generationally correctly, like, like you know, for me, like, Days and Confused, I was like, yes, like, this movie. I, you know, I, and, and, and then you watch the older ones and you're like, I don't get it. I don't get it. Everyone just seems like a jerk. You know, like, like who cares about this movie? <laughs> who cares about <laughs> Toad? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, ex- totally. Who cares about Toad? Yeah, one of the characters in it. Um, so, um, yeah, so it's it's that kind of movie. It's the kind of movie that, like, you know, at, I mean, the, the biggest expense in that film was getting the music rights, and because and the music rights are really important because you really wanted to sum it up exactly what it felt like. You know, you wanted to just be able to hear the last days of sock hop. And but the the thing about the nostalgia is this: in George Lucas's. I think absolutely correct understanding the Vietnam war experience during his generation had been so psychologically wrenching that just to look back 10 years earlier, cause that's all it is. It's, it's, it's like, remember how things were 10 years ago? Like that itself would be, wow. You know, like people would actually have a real serious emotional reaction to that kind of in the way that if we were right now saying, you know, imagine the years before Trump, like, do you remember the kind of music we were listening to? Like it would feel that, that, that same kind of way. Um, so so it's it, it works as nostalgia, even as like super quick nostalgia, not just because of the number of people like demographically in the baby boom and their sense of self-importance, uh, but just because of their feeling of how much they had lost in so few years. And what's that movie's relationship to technology? Because I think that's a theme that you trace very artfully over seemingly disconnected genres. But what what's that movie's vision of that? And how does that connect to sort of post-war post-war abundance or post-war fantasies because in some sense you could argue i think that that movie fetishizes technology particularly car technology and sort of this dream of post-war america that's what they're doing all the time they're messing around with their cars they're processing their feelings about cars they're fixing cars they're fixing up cars they're forging romances around cars it's about cars yeah hey you're supposed to be the fast thing in the valley man but that can't be your car it must be your mama's car i'm sort of embarrassed to be this close so you're correct. It's about technology. Um, but the fetish is complex because this is at a time when um, the material basis for automotive production is shifting. It's shifting to Japan. Uh, and uh, there are people, you know, getting laid off uh, in their factories. And part of the way in which the working class has of dealing with that is by kind of turning to artisanal car culture as a way of reclaiming their own power over their own machines, right? Is that we are the kinds of people who make cars. And even if you're going to lay me off or threaten to lay me off, I can just go in my garage and tinker with this kind of stuff. And we're, we're at the moment in car development where we're sort of on the cusp of like you not being able to do that anymore, right? Like people don't tinker with newly made cars anymore. Like literally we don't have the tools. Like it is just, you know, they're too capital intensive. They're too tech intensive. And, and you know, if you're going to tinker on a car, you're going to tinker with a car from that period, from the period that George Lucas is describing. So, I mean, yeah, this is a, you know, a way to kind of celebrate consumption, but it's also a way to mourn a, a, a very rapid loss of working class autonomy. And part of the nostalgia of the movie is a nostalgia of a white working class that could earn a breadwinner rage, uh, breadwinner wage working with their own two hands. And that's also something that he feels is no longer accessible. And again, we have another irony because the cars today are digital and yeah. George Lucas is the king of the digital. And so in this movie though, he's fetishizing analog, which I think when, when he passes away, I think you're going to be able to tell a really interesting story of the technological history of the 20th century and its ideological transformations, uh, just in his movies and how his own literal life proceeded. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the thing about Lucas is 
and this is the story of the whole, this is the entire story of Silicon Valley. It's a, it's a story of any political movement that gets successful. They think they're David even when they're Goliath. Do you know what I mean? And like Lucas understands the transition to digital as a way of, um, you know, putting that shot right in the thermal exhaust port of the Death Star. He sees big tech as being what the Hollywood studios do. And they have a monopoly power. They own all the sets. And like, you just can't get a movie made unless you go through like eight levels of executives and it drives them. And all of whom are in Southern California and he's in Northern California and he hates this, but he's like, oh, if we have like eight dorks in a, like, you know, basically in a garage, uh, you know, we can actually make our own film. So for him, it feels very much like, you know, making your own car, uh, or, or, you know, or fixing up your own car. Like it's a hot rod culture. Um, I think he just doesn't understand how, amazingly successful it's going to be and how much digital is going to be the sort of the face of, of, of capital in a new way. Right. Cause you need the, at this point you need intensive investments of capital to have access to the machines, to have access well, to yeah, the time. I mean, if, if looking at the credits on these Marvel movies, like just, just the sheer number of people who had to be put to work on CGI on these things is, is absolutely extraordinary. Um, but yeah, for him, he's, he's very much of a part of like a hacker digital culture where he thinks, you know, computers are a way of, of, of shunting power to the people away from the large corporations. Yeah, he's a Wozniak figure in a sense. Yeah, he's kind of he's kind of Wozniak jobs in one man a little bit, which yeah. is which is yeah. kind of interesting. And doing something yeah. on him in Northern California would be quite compelling. So what's the two point five movie you're referring to before we get to the big show, Star Wars? Apocalypse Now. So why don't you tell the story of his involvement? Because I actually didn't know that. I mean, I'm not yeah. an expert on Apocalypse Now, but it's totally wild. So he's supposed to make Apocalypse Now. He's f- close with Francis Ford Coppola, and um, they are the studio that they that they have um, wants to do this Conrad film based on um, uh, Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, and Lucas is going to be the one to do it. So he's you know he's got a script. He's scouting locations. Like like he gets like very far into it. But it's a critical film about Vietnam at a time when the Hollywood studios absolutely refuse to make those films. So he just can't get it made. Um, now, things are going to change very quickly in Hollywood, and soon there's going to be an appetite for exactly that kind of movie. But by the time the studios have come around, uh, George Lucas has decided that he can't actually do Apocalypse Now or can't do it on the terms he wanted, wants to do it. Uh, so despite having invested a lot of energy into it, he decides to take apocalypse now and translate it into terms that can be made which is a space opera so in george lucas's understanding what he's doing in making star wars is remaking apocalypse now uh and then francis ford coppola actually makes apocalypse now (laughs) so let's i I found it fascinating i just i just want to say like i found it fascinating that he and john milius worked on apocalypse now together and i can't imagine yes the two of them on a vietnam movie like finding any you know not tearing each other's throats out basically but it's they, uh, they work uh, together well, yes, so, his, his so who's john millius for people who might not know who john millius is red dawn explain his his role in hollywood and conan the barbarian john millius is amazing so first of all there are uh three very good hollywood films that all star uh memorable characters that are based on john millius so American Graffiti, the race car driver, like the like James Dean kind of hunk in American Graffiti is John Milius. And I forget what his name is, but it's like very similar to John Milius. Um, and uh, then in Apocalypse Now, uh, John Milius did contribute the writing of it. And particularly all of the lines that you remember from Apocalypse Now, because they are so unhinged and right wing, 
John Milius wrote them. The man is amazing. And that character, Colonel Kilgore, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Charlie can't surf. Those are lines written by John Milius for a character based on John Milius. There is a third film that you know that has a character, an unforgettable character based on John Milius, the big Lebowski, John Goodman's character, looks exactly like John Milius and talks exactly like John Milius is explicitly, clearly, unambiguously John fucking Millie's. I didn't know that. That's amazing. He's amazing. Yeah. And he's so right wing. Like he's like, he's like, you know, described himself as like to the right of Mao. Um, He makes Red Dawn, which is basically, you know, the son of Urtext of our times. Like if you want to, you know, I I hadn't watched uh, Red Dawn uh, until, until recently. And I watched, I was like, Oh, I never understood the right. Like every negative <laughs> that they have, they're like, they're like, oh, well, we hate, uh, we hate any like government census because then they they will know where your guns are, and then when the communists take over, they could confiscate your guns. I'm like, right, that's what happens in the movie. Like, there's just all, I mean, it all works. You know, it all comes together. It makes sense. Sure, it, it totally you got to fight sense. the communists. You got to be yeah, ready for yeah. them. Yeah, 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 for the Nicaraguan invasion. Um, uh, so he makes Red Dawn, and then he also makes Conan the Barbarian. He unleashes Arnold on the world. So yeah, John. So John Milius is working with Lucas, and I think they they're both fascinated by the Vietnam War, but they're both activated by it in different ways, and they have a kind of right left thing that I think works for both of them, and also because George George Lucas is very much a you know man of the left, uh, but more importantly, between the than the right left axis is the people versus technology axis, and I think that's something where he can collaborate with Milius, where they do see things similarly. So let's talk about Star Wars now. And, and we could just start uh, anywhere because this is what the, the essay is on. But let's just get into it. Why is it important to know about Star Wars' ideology? What are the ironies? What are the arguments? Yeah, I think the answer is that, I mean, you have to see Star Wars as as the Vietnam War film, right? So much of it is shaped. I mean, Lucas was totally explicit about this. He's like, this film is my response to Vietnam. It comes out, the first one comes out in 77, right as all the critical Vietnam uh, films are starting to come out, Taxi Driver, et cetera. And um, the, it, 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 it's his attempt to both do the thing he did with THX 1138, sort of criticize um, what he sees as not just the sort of policies uh of the you know war class uh but but the deep ideologies and then what's interesting is rather than do the thing he did in uh, thx 1138 where he just sort of made a grumpy dystopian movie it's like oh my god imagine if we let you know nixon and lyndon johnson just do more of what they were doing how horrible would it be he realizes having made american graffiti which was like this very peppy and very popular movie based on nostalgia he's like what if i make a feel-good movie what if I make a feel-good movie about how awful the Vietnam War was? And the way I make a feel-good movie is that you're rooting for the Viet Cong. So in Apocalypse Now, he had this like battle scene where it was going to be like, you know, uh, the Viet Cong, you know, had primitive weapons and, you know, and they were taking on this sort of like, you know, over like just like completely like, clumsy, but like overpowered machine of, you know, the U.S. empire and they win. And in Lucas's Apocalypse Now, you were supposed to be rooting for them. That's the Ewoks. Like he just literally took the same scene and ended up late, later on in the trilogy. But it's like he wrote that for Apocalypse Now. The, the Ewoks are the Viet Cong. And the whole feel good kind of thing about Star Wars is you want to see people who are low tech, 
who are not about like technological domination, destroy the people who are high tech. You want to see this ragtag sort of anti-imperialist group of rebels take on the hyper power. And Lucas was really explicit. He's like, the dark side is the United States. The empire is the United States. We are looking at, you know, a takedown of the United States, but you're going to root for it and you're going to enjoy it because A, you're going to be on the other side. And B, it's going to be a redemptive story. It's ultimately like not just that we're going to destroy the empire or the kill the emperor, but we're going to redeem it as well. And we're going to like yank Darth Vader back from the dark side. And, and you know, we're going to get our groove back as a morally get our groove back as a country. The, I, can I, I, I want to talk a little bit about the Ewoks, actually, because yeah, this article actually helped me understand something that uh, about that film, about Return of the Jedi, that's bugged me for a long time. And it's it's basically the... <laughs> I mean, this is silly, but it's the, like the fact that these guys, the stormtroopers, go around in full body armor everywhere, and yet yeah. every time they get shot by a laser, they die. Yeah. Which okay, I can sort of get that. But then in Return of the Jedi, you have them getting like hit by a rock from a slingshot and dying, yeah. despite yeah. being in this very cumbersome armor. And I, I think you get at why he made this choice to create these like cute little guys fighting with you know very kind of primitive weapons instead of having a, a more let's say robust native you know let's i mean you could have set this on the planet of the wookies and had them just like beating the crap out of stormtroopers and the the ewoks right and the ewoks are like the cutified version of wookies and i think the reason which you get out in in this article is he doesn't really care about that part of the story he doesn't really care about the Viet Cong. he wants to talk about the effect of the war on the empire on the united states and i think making a more uh, let's say scary uh, kind of primitive population and and inserting them in that that conflict would have maybe you know distracted from the message that he's trying to tell and so that's why you get these uh, you know fuzzballs basically that are that are non-threatening to an audience uh, and and let him still tell that story that that, that is exactly right so. On the one hand, you know, you're rooting for the Ewoks and, and you're right. It was initially going to be the Wookiees who were going to do that fighting. And then he chops, he's, as he put it, I chopped them in half and made them Ewoks. Um, you're rooting for the, for the Ewoks or the Wookiees, but you don't really care about them. You don't know them. You don't understand them. In fact, you can't understand a word they're saying. Uh, they are props in a morality play that is really about the redemption of the Skywalker family. So your focus is going to be on what it feels to be, what it feels like to be a Skywalker uh, and what it feels like to have parents who are evil, but you are, you are good. And like, can you save the project? Can you save the Skywalker legacy? Can you save the United States? But the actual subjectivity of the Ewoks or the Vietnamese or the victims of empire in any sense is completely uninteresting to him. And that again, as you say in the piece, that's how you get, Darth Vader, who's responsible for, you know, trillions of deaths, as far as we know, or maybe billions, I don't know, redeeming himself at the end of the story, because you just don't care, really. You're not supposed to care about the deaths. Those are the 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 people we don't ever see. We, we see one planet explode. We don't really deal with the ramifications of that. Uh, the focus is on America being good again and redeeming itself. It's yeah. not on the effect, in, you know, to, of of the empire on other people's elsewhere. Yeah. So let's just say out loud how insane the ending is. So we have seen Darth Vader be participate heavily in and being completely complicit in the entire destruction of one planet. And we are given to understand that this kind of thing is what he does. Like this is basically his job. And so, you know, by any moral accounting, it is over for Darth Vader. I mean, 
fine, it might be interesting from a plot point if he can be instrumentally used against the emperor. But this man is irredeemable. Like, you have killed billions of people, sir. Like, like nothing, like, like you know, no amount of niceness is really going to end that. Um, and yet that's exactly, like, that is the resolution of the trilogy is, you know, Anakin Skywalker is like a smiling force ghost who takes his rightful place, you know, next to Yoda, next to Obi-Wan. And like, we are led to believe that all is right because Anakin has been rede- redeemed. And you're just like, holy shit, this guy's killed so many people. And like, you know, the fact that he's kind of not the worst dad, that's it. Like, that's all it takes. Or that, you know, he's like plays a role in, in, in killing. And like, it, it, it is, it, you have to not care about the lives. You have to not care about the lives that, that have been killed. And, and I think that's actually true of George Lucas. Um, the, the best evidence of this is he made a sequel to American Graffiti, the uh, not very much watched American Graffiti 2, where they go to Vietnam. Like it is actually the only Vietnam War film that he actually made, uh, and it is it's a movie about the um, moral hazards of Vietnam and and what happens to the men who fight it and how it corrupts them and how they ultimately have to learn to adopt an anti imperial uh, and anti war position. And that and the film is set in Vietnam and there are scenes that take place in Vietnam and there is in that entire film you do not see a single Vietnamese actor you know, or or character. There is there's no Vietnamese presence. The entire Vietnam Viet, the Vietnam War is just you know a theater of white agony. And the, the the only interesting thing to ask about it is how does it make us feel, right? How does it make white people feel? That's the question he's got in American Graffiti too, and that's the question of Star Wars. And ultimately, that helps explain. I would imagine you would argue its enormous success is that you could vote against the Empire while you are the Empire because you'll be redeemed. Yeah, because then the story is, hey, that thing that happened, that wasn't really us. That was our dad, and we didn't like it very much, and like we, 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 we can fix it. Yeah, that's, the, that's why it feels so hopeful and exciting. So just a question that I had, and I don't believe you answered this in the, in the piece, but I'm curious if you had thoughts on it. What is Palpatine then? What, 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 is, what does that embody? Is that just like bad ideas, and that's where why we went wrong because that to me is is interesting because what is then the source of the problem which isn't really identified in star wars it's more like the action is the problem as opposed to the conception in a sense you know so you could still in theory you could have a good empire right that's that's the empire could be run by good people and therefore you have the good empire that's very sort of liberal internationalist but i was wondering what do you think the source of that problem was in star wars in the text yeah, so you're right. In theory, you could have a good empire, and this could be about you know making a bad empire into a good empire. That is not the proposition of Star Wars. Star Wars is against the idea that there's an empire. So there's an old republic, which is good, and there's a new empire that's bad, right? So basically, I mean, the view of U.S. power is we should just be politely great, and everyone will want to imitate us and want to you know, collaborate with us and want to ally with us. Uh, but the second we start, you know, over-investing in technology and expanding our, our reach, then we become an empire. The Republic devolves into an empire. And at a certain point, it becomes irredeemable. Uh, to answer your question, who is Palpatine? George Lucas had a clear answer. Richard Nixon. The hate is swelling in you now. He was like, look, I based the you know throne room on the Oval Office. Like, you're supposed to understand Palpatine as Nixon. I mean, 
fine. But the idea is that like, you know, if you, you can get corrupted too much, right? Like power corrupts, technology corrupts, um, a certain kind of like, uh, relationship to militarism corrupts, uh, Palpatine has gone too far. Uh, Darth Vader can be pulled back and Luke managed to stay pure throughout the whole thing. So he's in a sense, blaming it on an individual bad leader. And an individual bad leader, but also on the on the wrong outlook, right? The wrong way to be, the wrong way to to wield power. The Jedi are powerful, but the Jedi are a republic, uh, and the Jedi are anti-technology. I mean, it's actually we don't talk about this. It is extraordinary how opposed to technology the Jedi are. The climactic moment is Luke rejects the targeting system, uses the Force. They're in tune with a kind of organic force field all around them, and even their you know characteristic technology, the lightsaber. We hear. We're like, okay, this is an artisanal technology. Each Jedi makes their own. It's an ancient weapon. It's different from the uh, blasters that the Empire uses. And it's the preferred weapon because the old one. Could we talk a little bit about the Orientalism inherent in that? Yeah, yeah. Um, So, I mean, there's both the kind of representations of the other in various alien forms and robot forms uh, in Star Wars. And it's not hard to see the, you know, the droids as kind of doing a minstrel act. uh, And it's not hard to see the uh, Chewbacca and the Ewoks as some kind of, you know, trusty native companions. Um, But there's also a, a deeper Orientalism, which is that the Jedi are very strongly identified with Asia. Um, and in the original versions of the script that he was kicking around, George Lucas wanted first thought that all the Jedi should be played by Asian actors. Uh, he likened Princess Leia's planet Alderaan uh, to North Vietnam. He's like, this is a story about how North Vietnam gets vaporized and then how like they destroy the empire uh, after that happens. Uh, he was really interested in Japanese films and and a lot of the. I mean, you don't. It's funny you don't even think about this, but Han from Han Solo, that's like Chinese, like the, the Chinese ethnicity Han. Uh, the word Jedi uh, is a bastardization of a uh, Japanese term. And there's all these kind of ways through costume that um, Lucas is trying to tilt you toward and get you to see the Jedi as Asians, Asians being, of course, the victims of the U.S. empire. Um, But then he gets really into this, like, okay, what is it like to have a kind of Asian sensibility? And it starts to get very, like, California woo-woo. And a lot of it is based on these... um, books uh uh like fabricated books uh called like the way of power is one of them uh called uh, imagining i mean they're fabricated but so they're not purported to imagine but uh, about a guy who um apprentices with a yaki shaman uh in the in the desert and and learns mystical ways and learns uh you know gets sort of paranormal powers uh, a lot of those Lucas read all those books and, and you can actually see like a direct transposition from those books into um, Luke's apprenticeship, Luke Lucas, uh, his apprenticeship to Yoda. That's super interesting. So we've had you for a while and I, I was just wondering if we could close with this. Could we talk a little bit about that digital turn he makes in the 90s? And so I guess we talked about it for a second, which is that he views this as actually a rebellious act. But is there anything more to that? The fact that he uses technology to go back and edit, the fact that he adds new scenes, all of these things, he does have a very complicated relationship to technology. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about how that worked or played out in his career in the 90s and the aughts and beyond. Yeah, it's so bizarre because, I mean, he obviously thinks he's driving the Millennium Falcon and he's quite clearly driving the Death Star. Uh, And I think that's the big tragedy of his career. But he sees this as an artisanal technology. And in fact, a lot of what, you know, the kind of stuff he's done that is so irritating to historians of film, which is that he's edited, 
he's edited his own films after they've come out and then made it incredibly hard to get access to the early unedited versions, which, I mean, we see as a kind of form of artistic totalitarianism that requires complete, you know, control of all of the avenues by which um, film and IP are distributed. But for him, it's like, Oh, like, no, this is, this is the artist's integrity. Uh, he's getting, he, he, in ways that I think people don't recognize. Yeah. He has absolutely led, um, the transition to digital. So, uh, it's one of the, uh, prequel trilogy. I think it's the second one. Um, he not only filmed digital, but insisted it be projected digital, which was the thing that forced a lot of, um, theaters to, to have to buy the digital equipment. They were like, okay, we're going to do the Star Wars film. We actually have to have a digital projector. Industrial Light and Magic, his special effects studio, THX, his sound studio, Pixar, another George Lucas production. Like, like all of the kind of studios that, that create the digital landscape, a lot of them trace back to Star Wars and to George Lucas. Uh, he's absolutely loved that. But again, like he doesn't see it. He sees this as like, okay, now we're, now we're really artists are freed. Um, and of course it's more, it's the same story as Star Wars, right? He thinks of this as kind of liberatory, but it's mainly liberatory for him, uh, and not necessarily for, for, for the people who are the victims of the, the Star Wars enterprise. And that really does say a lot about the course and, and development of a particular generation of Americans, especially white male bourgeois yeah. Americans. Yeah. Daniel Imrevar, professor of history at Northwestern University. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on.